it's very gentlemanly game. I'm not very gentlemanly, so that that was hard to uh, to adjust to. It's still hard to adjust to. I want to hit people with my broom when I lose, and you know, have a hard time, you know, letting the winners buy me a beer. Like let's just rub it in. Welcome into the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I'm Dave Hellman. That other voice you just heard, that would be four-time All-Pro, five-time Pro Bowler. Sack guy extraordinaire Jared Allen had a wonderful conversation with him. Yeah, we talked about curling, if you didn't catch that. the Yeah, the, the ice sport talked about that, talked about his candidacy as a Pro Football Hall of Fame semifinalist, plenty of other stuff in between. Stay tuned for a wonderful conversation with Jared Allen coming up in a few minutes. But let's start the show where we need to. Did you see that game on Monday night? Actually, let me let me rephrase. Did you see that finish on Monday night, week 15, once again coming to a close with a bang? The Seattle Seahawks stun the Philadelphia Eagles 20 to 17 up at Lumen Field with some literal last-minute heroics. Monday Night Football continuing to deliver the goods seven straight weeks that the underdog has gotten a shocking win and none more entertaining than this finish for the Seattle Seahawks, sending Philadelphia to a third straight loss. But as I mentioned, it's all about how you finish, because let's be honest, not all Games are are great all the way through. Sometimes you're taking notes for a podcast. Maybe you're looking idly at your phone, counting the minutes, counting the hours until bedtime. Eh, I guess I'll see this thing through to the end. But this, yeah, this wasn't like a banger of a game for, I would say, 85% of it. This very much felt like a Philadelphia Eagles team that was trying to go up and get its season on track on a rainy night on the road and just say, all right, man, what, what do we got to do to meet the bare minimum threshold for a win? And I can't say I blame them again, two straight losses to two NFC rivals. Their quarterback Jalen hurts is, is sick. He's sick enough that he made his own travel arrangements. The defense is banged up. Darius Slay had a surgery. They change out the D coordinator. Sean Desai essentially gets demoted. I get it. Get up to Seattle, get the win, get the hell out of there. And that's, that's what it looked like. The Eagles looked like they were going to play ball control and just get out of here. Three scoring drives of 12 plus plays and five plus minutes grinding it out. Classic Philadelphia style. Eagles never led by more than 10 in this game. And most of the time it was seven points or less. But the thing that made this game not all that compelling is the Seahawks have problems of their own. Geno Smith's been dealing with an injury right before kickoff. Drew Locke is revealed as the starter and the offense at times looked like it was playing with a backup quarterback. Not only did Seattle punt five times on the night, all five of those possessions went five yards or less with very few exceptions. This just wasn't an explosive offense. So even in a game that was 17-10, 17-13, never felt like it was in doubt. And even 
even when the Eagles were forced to punt. They're up 17-13. They punt just before the two-minute warning. It still felt like this was going to an unimpressive but foregone conclusion. Uh, Another sloppy Eagles win, but what else is new? They've been doing that all season long. They punt the ball just before the two-minute warning. It's downed at the Seattle eight-yard line, and that's when you say, okay, I've barely seen the Seahawks string together anything tonight. You expect me to believe that they're going to pull off a 92-yard drive with the game on the line with a minute and a half to play? Well, you know the answer to that, don't you? And it's even more incredible because as the broadcast showed us, the Seahawks had just two touchdown drives of 80-plus yards on the season. And that was with Geno Smith in the lineup. Felt over. And then Drew Locke got them out of their own red zone with 18 yards to DK Metcalf. And then he picks up a short little six-yard completion. Nothing fancy, but okay, they're moving the ball. And then it gets really interesting when DK gets the 34-yarder down the sideline to move it into Philly territory. DK Metcalf, three catches, 58 yards with the game on the line. And then... Having moved into position, 30-something seconds to play, ball on the Philly 29-yard line. It's all there for you. Drew Locke uncorks a gorgeous go ball to Jackson Smith and Jigba. No safety help over the top. Perfect play goal. It's Jackson Smith and Jigba's third touchdown of the season. It's actually his second touchdown of the season for the game-winning points inside the final minute. He did it against Cleveland, too all-time moment at Lumen Field up in Seattle. And that is saying a lot. When you think about the memories that have been made there during the Pete Carroll era specifically, it, I'm, I'm not saying it's better than Richard Sherman in the NFC title game. I'm not saying it's better than Jermaine Curse in the next NFC title game. I get it. There have been some all-timers up there. As far as regular season wins go, this is it's right up there at the top. Julian Love. Gets his second interception of Jalen Hurts to kill this thing off in the final seconds. Woo! Not going to say what a game, but what a finish. Clearly, I'm still buzzing on the adrenaline. I don't have anything at stake in this. Just a wild, wild ending. A fun, fun ending. A cool moment for Drew Locke. He's clearly emotional in the post-game interview. The Seahawks playoff chances just get a shot in the arm. It jumped... I think it was down at 14% heading into the night that they make the playoffs. Now a 45% chance roughly that they make it as an NFC wild card. Obviously San Francisco's already locked up the division, but the NFC wild card race wide the hell open and the Eagles slink back to Philadelphia on a three game skid looking very much like a team that doesn't have answers right now. I would like to suggest some for Nick Sirianni in Philadelphia. I, I will say credit to the Seahawks, but I can't help but go back to the Eagles opening possession in the fourth quarter of this game up for 10 minutes to play. Like I said, Seahawks offense hasn't given you a ton of reason to stress. But what do the Eagles do? Whether it's offensive coordinator, Brian Johnson, Nick Sirianni, I'm not sure. But they, they get a four-play drive. Three of those play calls are passes. And the last of them is the worst one of all, a 45-yard heave to the end zone. That's Julian Love's first interception. Completely changes the tenor of this game. And the Seahawks didn't even do anything with the ball. But 
It's a costly turnover that didn't need to happen. Run the damn ball, Eagles. It's raining. Your quarterback's sick. Take a page out of the Bills playbook from Sunday. Run the damn ball. It gives life to the crowd, and you know what that means in a building like Seattle's. I thought it was a series of decisions that that opened a door that didn't need to be open. The Eagles had the lead for roughly 53 of 60 minutes on Monday night. They averaged five yards per carry, roughly. 4.7, I think exactly, with DeAndre Swift leading the way. And despite that, and despite the fact that Jalen Hurts was sick enough to book his own flight to Seattle, they attempted 31 passes on the night. Maybe reconsider. Maybe lean into strength of this team, which is the offensive line, the run game. Jalen Hurts looked fairly mobile in this game, had some nice moments as a runner. That's what I'm pondering as the Eagles try to right this ship. And they still can. There's plenty of time. It is a three-game losing streak, but two games against the New York Giants and a game against the Arizona Cardinals, there's still plenty of, of opportunity for them to rebound, but not until they get some answers, particularly to what's bugging them on offense. Maybe it starts with just running the damn ball and accepting that an ugly win is still a win. It served you all the way through the early stretch of the season. It feels like it's gotten away here in crunch time. It's bad news for the birds. I'm not going to say the NFC East race is, is wide open, but it is certainly back in play. The Cowboys are at least temporarily on top of the division with this loss. Both teams sitting at 10 and four. I can't even wrap my head around all the tiebreakers because there would be a lot of them if both teams went out. But that's still a long way away, given how the Eagles are playing right now. They need to do some soul searching or else this snowball feels like it's going to get even bigger, regardless of how bad the opposition is heading down the home stretch. So that's my, maybe my thoughts to ponder for, for Nick Sirianni, for the Eagles offense as they try to get off this skid, but Seattle Seahawks, thank you for the unlooked for adrenaline as we move into week 16. Okay, up next, I did promise a conversation with Jared Allen, and it was a good one. Covered his aspiring curling career, not to mention his Pro Football Hall of Fame candidacy. He is a semifinalist once again this year. Really enjoyed this talk with Jared. Check it out. All right, Jared Allen, I'm I'm excited for this. You you're you say you're you're on the way to your ranch in the Nashville area. It's a beautiful Monday. Obviously, been retired from the NFL for a little bit now, but. This is where my head is on a Monday morning. That's when we're recording this. Uh, just out of curiosity, thinking back to your playing days, can you take me through, you know, it's it's Monday, it's mid-December, it's, it's about to be week 16 of the NFL season. As a player, what does is, what is Monday morning feel like for you, like this late into the season when you've played this many games? Terrible. Mondays are always terrible, right? Yeah. Uh... They're just painful. I mean, maybe not as painful for these kids because we, you know, we had the we had the blessing for uh, we had tortoise shots, and so you got the full effect come uh, come Monday. <laughs> um, no, Mondays are painful, man. They really are. It all depends on the game, especially you get into these cold weather games outside, and uh, you know you just so it it really trying to stay in that routine, right? And then you know bumps and bruises get even more more painful if you have nothing to play for. So when you have something to play for, getting up and go get in a lift, get in the steam room, you know, it makes it a little easier. But um, but really, the, you know, Monday mornings are a struggle. It really is. I mean, especially, you know, up front, I think I read an article one time that's equivalent to, you know, 
to like a 25 mile an hour car crash on like every freaking Sunday, you know, um, over and over and over again. Imagine running backs feel like, yeah, you know, you just try to, you try to stay in routine. That's, that's the best thing is, is try to stay in routine, try to, you know, figure out what works, works best for your body. So for me, it was always trying to get up, you know, get moving, get, get a little lift in, get a hot tub, get a steam room. But yeah, I mean, it, it takes to about, you know, be honest until like thursday after practice you start feeling like all right maybe i can start doing this again i'm grateful for that perspective that's you know like i said it's what 14 15 games for these guys now i think it's useful to keep that in mind as we as we move toward the playoffs all right to get ready for this we can get back to football in a minute but i i just watched an interview you did recently with my friend Kay adams where you were on your way back from curling practice and I think you said at the time <laughs> that you had to go up to Manitoba for an event. I know, you know, you're trying to qualify for, for Olympic qualifiers. Can you, I mean, how did it go in Manitoba and, uh, and where do things stand with that right now? Yeah, we're pretty well. We lost in the quarterfinals. Uh, probably should have made it to the semis, but uh, so curling kind of works as like either a triple knockout or round or like pool play. So you kind of have your qualifying uh, rounds and then, you know, Monday or Sunday, depending on last day, they have the playoffs, which is, you know, quarterfinals through, through the finals. So we ended up making the playoffs and you get points for qualifying. You get points per win, but you get, you know, a big chunk of points for qualifying for the playoffs and stuff like that in each event. So we qualified, uh, picked up a good chunk of points. We ended up losing in the corners. But, you know, we're locked in for nationals. So that's our that's kind of our focus right now is just uh, we, we'll have a, we got one more tournament coming up in Duluth here in January and then uh, nationals coming up out in Jersey in February. So uh, that's where we're at. Go out there and try to try to win nationals at the at the very least podium, and then uh, gear up for the next season. And uh, you know, really that twenty four twenty five season, you know that those next year and a half, uh, you know, after this season will probably be crucial for uh, for um, you know Olympic trials. Um, and then you know, qualify for Olympic trials. It depends on if they take six great teams. And you know, with that, you get to go to uh, Italy. So. I mean, that's, that's incredibly cool for starters, but I'm curious. All right. So you have an event coming up in about a month and then nationals, you said are in February. So about two months. So what is, what does the routine look like? You know, how, how often do you practice? How long is a practice? I'm not sure how many people are familiar with the routine of, yeah, of so uh, curling. My, uh, my team is out. Most of my, well, everyone in my team is Minnesota. So I should, to just talked to Jason Smith, um, my guys yesterday. You know, they they were they they all practice together. They scrimmage Danny Casper's team, uh, so they scrimmage some other teams. For me, uh, you know, Bulger's got a nice facility here in uh, in Nashville uh, called T Line, and so I, I try to get out there. You know, right now, you know, after the last event, took a couple weeks off, I'll get back this week and probably be out there almost every day, if not, you know, three to four times a week throwing rocks. So usually, every, each practice about an hour and a half, two hours, uh, depending on what I'm trying to accomplish that day, and. Uh, depending off the team, you know, if you're practicing with a team or if I bring a coach in or something like that. So it all kind of differs and varies, but I try to throw rocks as, uh, as many as many days as possible. Is there a skill set you picked up from a career in football that lends itself to curling? And is there something you picked up as a football player that you kind of had to unlearn uh, as you got more into curling? Yeah, aggression. You cannot, you can't hit people in curling. You can't be aggressive <laughs> in curling. Um you really, it's like you're a short game of golf, right? It's a very finesse sport, uh, minus sweeping, right? So I think, you know, just being athletic and big, you know, helps me in the sweeping category. Uh, 
But other than that, totally different. Uh, I think from a mentality standpoint, that's that's a different. Like, you know, curling. If you if you lose him by too much, you shake hands and quit. Like, that's a respectful thing. It's a very gentlemanly game. I'm not very gentlemanly, so that that was hard to uh, to adjust to. It's still hard to adjust to. I want to hit people with my broom when I lose, and you know, have a hard time. You know, letting the winners buy me a beer. Like, that's just rubbing it in. You know what I mean? Um, and I'm I'm always curious. You know, I mean, look, I I grew up in the south. Curling is about as foreign to me as it gets. Just I very spent very little time around ice. Uh, but yeah. I, I'm all I'm always struck when I watch it. It's it's such a quiet sport, and I'm you know coming from football where it's like noise all the time, and you know trying to to ramp up the crowd to affect the offense. Like I mean, what how how's that adjustment? Yeah, well, don't don't get fooled. Like it's not quiet because you're on a sheet with like eight other teams, right? Let's say there's four sheets out there. You got four games going, so you got you know eight eight teams out there, and they're all or even six. A lot of times you're in six to eight sheet clubs, right? So you got anywhere from twelve to sixteen teams on there, and everybody's screaming at the people to sweep. At you know. Which again, I'm not sure if you yelling at me to sweep harder is actually motivating me to sweep harder. I mean, you're accusing me of not sweeping hard then. But that's the thing, Curly, everybody yells. So on the ice, it's actually pretty loud because it's just a bunch of people screaming. Um, and then you get to, you know, you play over in Europe or you play in, you know, where people speak different languages, then it's a whole bunch of different languages screaming and you're just super confused. Um, <laughs> but from the standpoint of the crowd, yeah, I mean, it's like chess, right? So it's like you make a good shot and you get to get excited about it. You know, Nationals are crowded here. You kind of, you know, rile them up a little bit. But the, the guy behind you could make a great shot too. Your shot can be meaningless. And it's kind of like, you know, it's the de- deflation. Um, so, but yeah, you don't really get to play to the crowd that much because, you know, I guess maybe maybe when you win the whole thing, you, you know, I'll, I'll belly slide down the ice, but win the whole thing. I was going to say, I mean, if if we get you there, if, if this, if we keep escalating, I mean, could we get a hog tie celebration in a curling oh, event? Absolutely. Like- yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, we beat Schuster. We beat Schuster uh, our first game in Nationals last year. And, you know, I would have done that for that. I was pretty pumped about that. I was pretty pumped. Right. But again, it's like this whole gentleman thing. And you know, you know, you got like a whole week's game. So it's like people try not to overly celebrate. Where that, that's what's hard for me. I'm like, they, they try to be like, you know, the best curlers are very just, just deadpan, right? Like no emotion, almost sociopathic, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, but I'm like, yeah, I mean, come on. If I get rubbed in someone's face after I beat them, like, what's, what's the point? You spend a lifetime. I mean, if you get one sack in a game, that's a great game. Yeah, like you got to take yeah. your wins when you can get them, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of which, I, I, you got a lot going on. I get it, but I, I'm I'm sure you saw over the weekend Daniil Hunter uh, passed you on the list of uh, the Vikings all time sack list. I, I suppose as a as a guy that that knows a thing or two about it, uh, and I, I know you you've been an admirer of Daniil's game for a while. But what what stands out to you about it uh, that's that's enabled him to get this far? Oh, he's consistent. Um... You know, so I mean, when he's not hurt, he's very consistent. Uh, he's 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 more he's more traditional too. You know, a lot of these guys are specialists these days, right? You know, you see a smaller breed, two forty, that that hybrid linebacker the end status. Where I mean, this dude could have played back when I came into the league, when we still had Marty Ball, right? And, and they're running power every day. Um, he I mean he's that type of player. He's he's a four down player, and uh, I think that's what that's what I like about it. And you know, I know he bounces around sometimes, but he predominantly plays on the. Uh, you know, the right end position. Well, I guess he plays left end a lot now. Uh, I know Everson was playing that right end for a while, but um, 
you know, he, it's traditional. I so, so it's nostalgic for me too because it's a four three guy, right? Um, and so, but no, I just, I just, he's, a, he's a technician. He can, he can beat you in so many different ways. You know, he can power you. He can, he can out technique you. He's got burst, and, and especially in the day and age where you have a, a quarterback set that is running like you know running backs and, and DBs pretty much. Um, and this dude's chasing down and being successful. So big fan of his. Um, you know. Man, I wish I would have signed my last three years in, in Minnesota and stacked those numbers a little higher, though. <laughs> I mean, it, it's fitting, though. And I was going to ask you next, like, okay, so it's Daniil. You obviously have a boatload of sacks. Chris Dolman is there. John Randall. Like, it, I know I know Minnesota has a crazy home field advantage, but what is it about the Vikings and producing these badass pass rushers? No, I don't know. But look, go look at organizations around the league, right? There's usually one position that each – that 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 specific franchises are known for, and the Minnesota Vikings have been known for D linemen since you know Alan Page, Carl Eller. I mean, dude, the list goes on and on. Jim, you missed Jim Marsh, Johnny Rand, right? I mean, just the list goes on and on. Kevin and Pat Williams, and and for some reason, that's just been the foundation of, of this franchise, and it's come from owner to owner, general manager to general manager. Um, and I, I don't know the reason why. Maybe it's just because it's the North. And, and you're expected to be tough and play tough ball. So the emphasis has been on, you know, on, you know, at least the defense is out of the ball, you know, being able to, uh, to handle business up front. And, uh, you know, and so you go, you go look back at the history of the North, right? I mean, from the Bears to the Packers, you know, even Detroit, I mean, with Barry had a fantastic running game. So you had guys that had to be able to stop the run. Um, and then you know, just transition to uh, to being able to rush the patch as well. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know the reason why, but it's a storied defensive uh, line franchise. And so, like, I don't even know if I'm in the top five all the time there. To be honest with you, I mean, I was only there six years. Uh, I think Josh Eller's got to be ahead of me. Carl, I know Alan Page has got to be the leader. I mean, even though they weren't keeping sacks those those times, uh, Dolman. I mean, he was there how many years? Goodness, I think he's probably got over a hundred with the bikes, don't he? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's quite a list. I was looking at it last night. It's, yeah, yeah, I mean, no, it's beyond yeah, impressive. It's uh, you know, so yeah, I mean, well, that's that's the cool part too. I think you know, especially with, you know, and I've never had a problem with anywhere, but you know, I remember when I broke the single season record, Dolman was right there with a the big grin, and, and you know, really just had that kind of support and see that kind of support from you know fellow D linemen that you know you're you're taking the place in history because. So to speak, uh, so yeah, Daniel, Daniel couldn't be a better, better person to pass me and to continue to climb that chain if he decides to stay there. And, uh, you know, so yeah, I mean, again, he, he represents one. Speaking of immortality, I mean, four time all pro, five time pro bowler. To some degree, I get it, this, this is the fourth time you're, you're a semifinalist for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I get it's it's out of your hands a little bit. I'm sure you don't love getting asked about it, but I, I'm curious though, when at at what point in your career or when you started your career did you realize that this would be um, a conversation for you and and that it was a goal you you hoped to achieve? Uh, without sounding arrogant, day one, um, you know, um, I, I it never was did to put on the gold jacket. That was never the chase. It was just to be the greatest. Um, and, you know, I, I kept a list of all the people ahead of me on the sack list that, that's a great alignment that I watched, you know, film on. You know, I, I spent my whole time in Kansas City chasing Derek Thomas, right? And I just made that, and to be honest, my career, that was my, I judged, I judged my career based on Derek Thomas on what he did and, and how fast he did it. And I was able to accomplish that and, and actually do it faster than he did. So, 
um, that was kind of, you know, what always drove me because I thought Derek Thomas was one of the greatest ever to play this game. And unfortunately he was cut short. And I think he's probably pushing that 200 number if he continued to play for another, you know, five, even six years. I mean, that can do was insane, but I was able to learn a lot from him watching this film. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was always how I challenged myself is, is how can I measure myself against greatness? Um, and so that was, that was my goal from day one. And had, again, the, the gold jacket, it wasn't like, Oh, hall of fame was the answer. Right. It was, it was about winning the Super Bowl. His coach from Mill told me my rookie year, he was like, the best way you help our team, I'll never forget. I let it, I let a play go through the B gap, right? Let the linebacker get it. I could have fall back and made the tackle for, you know, probably two yards or something like that. And he was like, make every play possible. He's like, the best way you help our team is by being the best defensive end you can be. He's like, football is an individual sport. He's like, if all, if all 11 individuals win their battles, we'll be a hell of a team. And I'll, and I'll never forget that conversation. And that's what drove me was just, just chase these guys down because I figured if I could catch them, right. Just like, you know, practicing against Willie Rowe, I figured if I could beat Willie Rowe, I could beat everybody else. So if I can catch these guys, if I can do what these guys did, I'll have a heck of a career and, um, and I'll, and I'll be able to, uh, you know, when I, when I'm done, hold my head up high and know I did the right way. So, yeah. So from day one, that was, that was always the goal is just chase down greatness. Well, I think you did a phenomenal job, man. I will be uh, I'll be rooting for you when that time comes this this year. One last thing. Look, and I know you get asked a lot of questions about it. Uh, and and your your mullet competition does a great job raising money for your uh, for your homes for wounded warriors foundation. But like you were doing the mullet thing. I mean, look, I, I just turned 35. I, I remember watching you when I was a hell of a lot younger. And like you were doing the mullet thing way before it was cool. And now like Gen Z is trying to claim it for themselves. Like, what do you, what do you think about this like mullet renaissance that's going on right now? It wasn't a fad. I mean, the flow is still strong as you can see, um, you know, we're just out here. We're just out here living it. And, um, you know, I can't take credit for it. You know, the boss had it way before me. Uh, Billy Ray Cyrus was was crushing it, which Billy Ray, I mean, if you're listening, you should go back to it, bro. Don't don't sleep on what got you where you're at. Um, you know, I mean, think about the generations. I mean, goodness. I mean, you could go back to the I mean, 80s. I mean, Rick Springfield crushing it. I mean, stay most, stay most. I mean, go back to it, bro. The classics are classics for a reason, right? That's what I'm saying. So yeah, so I'm, I'm excited when the younger generation takes off. You know what? I get, I do get a laugh out of it though, because everybody tries to like really like trash it up. You know what I mean? You know, at some point though, you got a classic, right? That's what I like seeing in the competition. I like seeing someone throws on a suit. Like, like let's take the mullet to, to corporate America. We can make some serious changes then, right? You get some, you get some mullet wearing CEOs out there, folks. It's gonna be good. I'm waiting for the president to have a ball. Then, then it's just like boom, world power again. It's- that's 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 the America I want to live in. Maybe in time for the 2026 Olympics, which hopefully we will be watching you at. Uh, oh, dude, look, yeah. Jared, I could talk to you all day, man. Uh, but I'm gonna make it a goal for 2024 to get to a curling event. And uh, oh, yeah, man, come I, on. I uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time. Hopefully, we'll catch up with you again. Absolutely. You guys have a good one. Merry Christmas. Quickly, let's get into some news and notes coming out of the weekend, and there is plenty of it. As usual, a lot of it injury-related for starters. Jaguars quarterback Trevor Lawrence is in concussion protocol after Sunday's loss to Baltimore. Doug Peterson mentioned that after the game. He's getting looked at for a potential concussion. Something to bear monitoring as the Jags travel to play Tampa this weekend. We'll just keep an eye on it this week as the Jaguars work through their schedule. Elsewhere, Cincinnati Bengals star receiver Jamar Chase 
He's expected to miss, quote, some time with the separated shoulder he suffered in the Bengals' win against Minnesota on Saturday afternoon. Sounds like he's going to miss this weekend's game against Pittsburgh, and it could be more than that. Like I always say, the later you get in the season, even even a couple weeks is a big, big deal. Sounds like Jake Browning's going to need T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd to step up once again for the Bengals. Sticking in the AFC North, Baltimore Ravens running back Keaton Mitchell confirmed to miss the rest of the season with a torn ACL. Unfortunately, it looked pretty obvious the minute he went down Sunday against Jacksonville that this was going to be the case. Just a a gnarly looking fall. He clearly looked distressed leaving the game. I hate it for him. He's one of the most exciting rookies in the NFL right now. Tough break for the Ravens running back room as well. They've already lost J.K. Dobbins for the season. So it's all eyes on Gus Edwards and Justice Hill on the roster. And remember, Melvin Gordon is on the Ravens practice squad as well. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets moved up to the roster as the week goes. Speaking of running backs, good news for the Kansas City Chiefs. Kansas City head coach Andy Reid says he expects Isaiah Pacheco back for Kansas City's Christmas Day game against the Las Vegas Raiders. Could be a big boost. I mean, not just for the offense, but really the Chiefs' whole running back room. Like we said yesterday, Clyde Edwards, Elaire, and Jarek McKinnon both had really nice days against New England. So running back room in KC all of a sudden looking really strong. Up in Pittsburgh, Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin announced that Mason Rudolph is going to start Saturday against the Cincinnati Bengals. Rudolph takes over for Mitchell Trubisky, who struggled once again in the loss to the Colts. Rudolph will be the Steelers' third starter this year as they try to salvage some hopes of a playoff appearance without Kenny Pickett. And let's wrap it up with the Steelers. Maybe the the most nuanced story coming out of out of the weekend. Veteran safety DeMonte Casey has officially been suspended for the rest of the season after that scary hit on Colts receiver Michael Pittman Jr. on Saturday afternoon. The NFL cited, quote, repeated violations in the decision to suspend him. It's interesting enough in its own right. You lose a veteran starter for the home stretch of the season. Mike Tomlin said he knows Casey isn't a dirty player, but he understands that in this day and age, the onus is 100% on defenders not to make these types of decisions. It's true. But the the interesting twist to the story is what happened when the news came out, which is that none other than the GOAT, Tom Brady, maybe you've heard of him, weighed in on the news on Instagram. So it's it's a long comment. You can go read it for yourself if you haven't seen it. But the gist of it is basically Brady said to put to put all of the blame on a defender in a situation like this is just flat out wrong. It's not okay for quarterbacks to throw receivers into situations like that. It's not okay to get your wide receivers hit because of your bad decisions. Personally, I get Brady's point. I do get it. The rules of the league right now are just insanely tilted toward offense, insanely tilted toward scoring points, getting touchdowns, fantasy football, all that stuff. And I do think it is emboldened quarterbacks to make throws that put their receivers in compromising positions because it's, it's worth the risk. You're either going to get the completion or you're going to get a flag. It's a weekly occurrence for an offensive series or, or drive to continue because a defender made a big hit Usually a legal hit, in my opinion. Ref hears the loud noise, sees a scary collision, throws a flag, and a drive that would have stalled continues. I'd love to see it if the league would make this stuff reviewable so that when there is a bad decision or when there is a legal hit, you can look at it, 
restore some semblance of physicality on the defensive side of the ball. Having said all of that, having just come to Tom Brady's defense, I'm just not sure this is the play to get upset about. And I don't want to, I don't want to insinuate that Demonte Casey is a dirty player, but I just think in 2023, your hands are tied. And at this point you should know it. You've either, you've either got to try to make a play on that ball or at the very least you touch the guy down when he hits the ground and move on to the next play. Yeah. I know that's going to rub some people the wrong way. I know that's not the way that the steel curtain played back in the day when the Steelers were winning all those Super Bowls, but that's the game right now. And we all know that. And so I'm not sure this was the one, this was the play that should draw that kind of outrage. There are plenty of them where you say, man, what's the guy supposed to do? I think in this instance, it's pretty obvious what DeMonte Casey was supposed to do. Not sure if it's worth a suspension, but it's definitely a flag and maybe not worthy of the book length Instagram comment in this case. But in general, I do get Tom Brady's point. I do get your point. If you're a fan of defense, as we like to do so often on Tuesdays, we're going to check in with a division that was particularly interesting in week 15. I swear we don't do this on purpose, but we are going to bring in our guy, Ben Arthur, once again, Fox sports, AFC South writer, what division is more compelling than the AFC South right now. Three teams in the thick of the division race, Houston and Indianapolis get big wins over the weekend to narrow the gap on the Jacksonville Jaguars. Drama abounds in the AFC South, which is just not something we saw coming. So let's bring in Ben Arthur to talk about it all right now. All right, Ben, it's it's been shaping up this way for a little bit now. We're, we are officially in a dead heat. The Jacksonville Jaguars... That that big lead, or it felt like a big lead at least, it has evaporated here over the last three weeks. And the AFC South has three eight and six teams vying for playoff contention. So we could start with the Jags. They are still technically in first place, and we'll get there. But I want to start with, with the darling team of the NFL on Fox podcast this season. That's the Houston Texans. They find a way to get it done in Tennessee, maybe not the the prettiest game of their season, but you know what? It it doesn't matter. It's a win and it gives them a week to try to get CJ Stroud back into the lineup. Do you see that as a possibility for this week? I guess let's start there. Yeah, I I imagine it would be a possibility as of today when we're recording CJ is still in concussion protocol. That's what D'Amico Ryan's told reporters on, on Monday, but I, I imagine he has a good chance to play this week. Uh, just, I mean, we have seen more serious concussions, like even in my own division, like the Titans, Titans receiver Traylon Burks missed uh, about uh, three, three or four games with a concussion. Uh, so it, it is possible for those kinds of injuries to kind of like prolong. Um, but I, I think in most cases, we've seen guys be able to come back after uh, missing one game. So I, I imagine that's in the plan. Uh, I mean, the, the Texan, Texans would obviously hope for, for that to be the case too. Uh, case Keenum came up big for them this weekend in, in Nashville, but you, you would certainly love to have your QB one back. So, so I guess it's kind of still wait and see for the Texans at this point. I couldn't help but think about you at the, in the home stretch of this game, not a very memorable one. It, it kind of looked like not having CJ was going to sink them in the end. And then 
they they kind of catch fire there at the end for for two scoring drives in the last 15 or 20 minutes of the game. I know you're you're working on a on a story about D'Amico Ryan's and how he's kind of changed the culture there to rally behind a backup quarterback. And I know Case Kingdom has played a lot of games in this league, but just given the guys they've lost here over the last few weeks, not having their quarterback, what do you think it said about what D'Amico Ryan's has done there uh, that they were able to rally and and keep their playoff hopes afloat? Yeah, I, I think it says a number of things, Dave. I, I think number one, it really speaks to the depth of this Texans team, right? Like they, they weren't only down CJ Stroud, but they were without Nico Collins, we know Tank Dell is on IR. He's out for the season. They're without their top off-ball linebacker and Blake Cashman. They were without Will Anderson, who's really their number two edge rusher. They're without their right tackle. They're without one of their better defensive backs. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And they, they were able to get this massive win uh, in, in Nashville. And, and so I think that really speaks to their depth. I mean, Noah Brown is a guy who had shown at times uh to to be productive uh for them and without nico and tank dell i mean he he really showed out uh and then dalton schultz came up big for them too and then devin singletary the 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 running back he's really become rb1 for houston so so he came up big as well but i think more than anything dave i mean this really shows the work that D'Amico ryans has done with this defense uh I think from from the start of the year that they'd shown improvements from what was last season a, a disaster. But I, I think as the year has worn on, they've continued to get better and better. And, and they're really the, the primary reason uh, they won this game. I mean, Derrick Henry is a guy who has gone bonkers on them for, for years. He's had multiple 200-yard rushing games against them. And he only had nine rushing yards on, on 16 carries, his worst uh, rushing performance as a Titan starter um, really bottled him up. They bottled up DeAndre Hopkins. They sacked Will Levis seven times. I know the Titans line has a lot of issues, but sacking him seven times was huge. Derek Stingley showed out uh, to have the defense play like this in December uh, when you know you don't have CJ, you, you you don't have a lot of those offensive fireworks, so to speak, in terms of your talent on that side of the ball, and to have that side of the ball really elevate and 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 pl- rape, rise to the occasion in kind of a, a must-win game at this point in the season, uh, I, I think really speaks wonders about kind of what D'Amico Ryan's has done. A must-win game, and also it had to have felt so good to get a win over the Titans when they were wearing those Oilers uniforms. Like what a, what a petty move by Tennessee. And I think it's fair to say it, it kind of backfired for him on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, D'Amico Ryan's didn't want to like address, like if like the fact that the Titans were wearing the Oilers throwbacks added any motivation. I, I mean, you wouldn't expect anything less from, uh, from just D'Amico and usually coaches will, kind of play it that way but um but yeah no no doubt about it uh that they kind of felt some type of way about it i know a lot of houston fans uh were, were upset oh yeah about it too oh uh, yeah for it was sure all over, yeah <laughs> it was all over social media and 
just in the city of Houston too. So, um, so yeah, it felt especially good. And then we saw the uh, Texans social media, they kind of clapped back. Uh, they, they've been really good at that this season, by the way, just in terms of clapping back at teams who, um, you know, try to make them seem small, but then they get the win. And then like within five minutes, they put out a tweet and, And the Texans did the same thing. Like they quote tweeted a tweet the the Texans had about just wearing the Oilers throwbacks, and they, you know, so so it was just kind of fun. But but yeah, I know I know it really fired them up to to be able to do it, uh, to to be able to do what they did with, with the Titans wearing those jerseys. You know what? After after the four or five years that the Texans have had, even even if they don't make the playoffs, like good, enjoy your football. That's supposed to be the point. So I'm I'm glad the Texans at least have that going for them, no matter what happens next. All right, I, let's let's check in with the team that's technically still leading the division, but it it feels like the vibes go from from bad to worse with the Jags. I mean, Trevor Lawrence, he already had the ankle injury. He is now also being evaluated for a concussion. On top of that, just a, an ugly night against Baltimore on Sunday. Had turnover issues. The defense, once again, maybe not standing up as strongly as you'd prefer. Can you can you picture a way? And I mean, I know we, we won't know what Trevor's situation is for at least a few days. So I get that. But can you picture a way going to play Tampa Bay next, like how can the Jags attempt to right the ship? I mean, it's, it's not just that they're losing games, but, but they're losing them in, in untenable fashion here, you know, in the home stretch of the season. Yeah, that's, that's it, Dave. Like it, the fact that this is happening in the home stretch of the season where those elite teams, those contending teams should be playing their best ball at this point in the year. And, and the Jags are literally playing their worst ball. And and the way they've been losing has been quite baffling. Uh, just, yeah, just in that Ravens game on uh, Sunday night football, they, they were in, they went, they went to Ravens territory five times and, and they had no points to show for it. Uh, missed field goals, even before, uh, well, Trevor Lawrence, it was revealed that he was in concussion protocol after the game, but just the right. way he played was, it was just kind of, if you're a Jags fan, you, you couldn't maybe help but just rip your your hair out just with kind of kind of the stuff that 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 happened, like the, the lost fumble in, in the red zone, and he wasn't even touched. He just straight up just dropped the ball on a scramble inside the 20, and then the extremely poor situational awareness at the end of the first half. That was, I, I mean, that's just very elementary. And and for, for, for a team with the talent that it has and, and for Trevor Lawrence, what he's supposed to be to kind of make those kinds of mistakes, uh, they're, they're inexcusable. And, and then as you touched on the, the defense has had issues too, a, a lot of ups and downs outside of Josh Allen Um yeah, it just kind of feels like the the Jags are are fading at at exactly the the wrong time. Uh, Doug Peterson went when he spoke after the Sunday night game. It was like the most like like he just looked baffled. Like he, he didn't have answers. He he took much longer to to speak uh, to reporters than he had at like any other point this year. And and I think it's really interesting because. It, 
Doug Peterson said this last week, and, and Josh Allen actually said it today, that they both indicated how in, in practice they're, they're not as sharp as they need to be. Like, had Doug had been asked about, like, the pre-snap penalties that keep happening, and Doug was basically like, and again, this last week he was like, yeah, they keep showing up in practice, so I'm not surprised this is happening in the game. And then Josh Allen was also talking about how the execution – isn't quite there and it's like this is week six we're in week 16 now right like this cannot be happening with a team that has this much talent uh to to but for this just to be happening it's really um it's really hard to to understand um and it just even if they do still kind of get into the playoffs at this point i I don't know how you could look at this team and feel that they have any run in them at this point. And again, there's still a lot of football left, but not confident. There's not, there's not that much football left, Ben. Yeah, like it, I know we've been, I, I say that every week, but with, with each passing week, you look at it and you're like, man, three, three games ain't a ton. And I know it's, it's our job to make sense of all of this, but I, I think you're right. Like, I think the Jags basically are a team that should be better than they are. Uh, and I think that applies to Trevor Lawrence. I think that applies to the skill players. It is. I mean, it's a tough break to lose Christian Kirk. Obviously you can't game plan for that. I know they've had offensive line issues, but we've seen the defense play to a higher level of ability than what we've seen over the last two, three weeks. Like, whether you want to blame coaching, whether you want to blame, blame the players themselves, that's that's all I can think watching Trevor Lawrence recently is like, I know you're a good player. I see you do like five things per game that almost no one else in the league can do. But for whatever the reason, uh, the consistency just doesn't match it with this team. I don't know where you lay the blame, but but I I mean, I don't think you have to think about it harder than that. Yeah, it's kind of all over the place, Dave, like just in terms of that blame. And again, this is what we're in week 16 now. If if we're still talking about how they still can't seem to put it together, it's just who they are, right? This is just who the Jags are, unfortunately, in, in, in their case. I mean, we enter this season with very high expectations with what they were able to do at the end of last year. That uh, they were a game from you know getting to the AFC Championship game, and they were expected to really hit the stratosphere this year. And um, it, it's it's just these kind of little. It, it seems like all these little details every game, and and in a lot of cases, it's the same mistakes that keep happening week in and week out. Um, it, it's it's frustrating and. Uh, and, and like I said, I, I think it's just who the Jags are and uh, and, and we'll see if, if they could kind of get through uh, these last three weeks and and still kind of get in the playoffs. Can't say I'm optimistic, but yeah, I mean, it, three games is enough time to turn it around, I guess, especially in a division as competitive as this one. But uh, I'm with you. I can't say I feel super optimistic. All right. Wasn't Sunday. It was Saturday. The Indianapolis Colts go down early and then just jump all over the Pittsburgh Steelers to climb up to eight and six firmly in the middle of the playoff race. Despite, I, I mean, they might be, they're more surprising than the Houston Texans, right? Like that's not a crazy statement just because the Texans have D'Amico and Will Anderson and CJ Stroud. Like, I don't know. 
I don't know where to start with the Colts, which is why I want to talk about this guy. Cause I remember last time you came on, we talked about the Colts need Jonathan Taylor back. Well, they, they don't get him. And then Zach Moss goes out and then lo and behold, here is Trey Sermon who was like an afterthought in the league after, you know, he had this fun college career. I thought he was going to catch on in San Francisco and Philadelphia doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen for the guy. And then he is like one of the catalysts for this Colts offense. What, what was the reaction with the Colts uh, when Trey Sermon kind of made his stamp on the season on Saturday afternoon? Yeah. And, and honestly, Dave, it wasn't just him too. It was uh, Tyler Goodson uh, who also had, I, I think close to 70 yards and and uh, and above five yards uh, per carry together, they had close to 160 on the ground. G- Goodson was elevated from the practice squad. He, he's a practice squad player coming up big. And, and then to to kind of take it further, just with, with the backups, uh, Michael Pittman Jr. obviously got knocked out of the game early uh, with uh, that that hit from Demonte Kazee. Um, and DJ Montgomery, who probably no one knows of, what was their leading receiver when he uh, left the game, and and he was signed from the practice squad just two days prior, and and he had a touchdown. He was their leading receiver, not named Michael Pittman Jr. And 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 just to see these backups play the way they did, I, I think it says a, a lot about. The, the coaching of this Colts team of what uh, of what Shane Steichen has done in spite of all the the issues they've had and and the injuries and um, the up and down quarterback play and the Jonathan Taylor situation and they've been without their right tackle for most of the season they've had cornerback issues all year one of their best defensive players in Grover Stewart missed six games due to a suspension. And, and they're just right in this man, they're actually the hottest team in the AFC South. They've won five of their last six games. Um, it's really an incredible. I I just keep thinking about just the job that Shane Steichen has done. I mean, Kevin Stefanski is maybe a lot of people's coach of the year at this point, just with, everything they've been through, like their fourth string quarterback, essentially. But um, but right after him, and and I know D'Amico's in the conversation as well, but but I would put Shane Steichen right up there. I mean, everything they've endured, and, and the Colts still have a top eight scoring offense. They're putting up nearly 25 points a game <laughs> in, in spite of everything that's gone on. And it's like the, the Colts just find a, a different way to win every game. It's never pretty. Um, it, it doesn't look, it's not aesthetically pleasing. Um, but, but they just, they just seem to find a way somehow, some way. Um, and it's, it's really impressive. Uh, so I don't, yeah, the, the Colts are impressive. But the, there's no better word for it. I, I mean, Kevin Stefanski is doing a wonderful job in Cleveland. Don't get me wrong, but I look at it and even, even knowing all the things the Browns don't have, and it's a long list, but you can still pull that defense out as like a trump card and say, well, okay, at the end of the day, this defense has largely been healthy, at least up until the last couple of weeks. You got Miles Garrett on that side of the ball. 
I mean, I know Zaire Franklin's a hell of a linebacker, but you like that. That's about it as far as star power goes on this Colts defense. And and yeah, man, they just they find a way on both sides of the ball. I think not that I have a vote, but if I had one, I'm thinking it goes to Shane Steichen right now. Yeah, no, it 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 has to. Yeah, I mean, just as you kind of say that, yeah, I mean, it, Shane Steichen is definitely in my top top two for sure in terms of coach of the year candidates. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what else to say, Dave. I'm, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm no, literally, yeah. hey, Ben, you don't you don't have to say anything else. That sums up yeah. the Colts perfectly is you just kind of scratch your head and you're like, exactly. <laughs> I don't really know what to make of this, but yeah. they're two games above 500 with a hell of a good shot to make the playoffs. So, I mean, I, I don't I don't I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but this is this is about as good of a division race as there is, as there is coming down to the very end. I mean, I guess the the NFC South is entertaining in its own ways, but those teams are struggling to stay above 500. You yeah. got three, eight and six teams here in the AFC South. I guess if CJ Stroud is coming back, I'll probably ride with the Texans. Uh, how how do you feel about that decision on my part? Yeah, honestly, of the three, I, I feel the most optimistic uh, about the Texans. I mean, like we talked about, it feels like the Jags are falling apart. The Colts, I, I just don't. I mean, again, they've continually proved me wrong. Like, I didn't think we'd be talking about them in this way at, at this point. I, I always felt like, that they at some point, like their lack of talent or, or whatever was going to catch up to them, but they're still in this point. They're still at this point. But I just think because of the quarterback play, not knowing for sure what you get out of Gardner Minshew week in and week out holds them back, especially as we get closer to the playoffs. And we, we know what CJ is capable of. We've seen him put the Texans on his back and just orchestrate engineer something incredible uh and and have it knowing that fact on top of a defense as i said that has continued to grow uh a depth of this team that showed more than ever in nashville this past week to to eliminate the titans from uh playoff contention what when they get CJ back and and Nico Collins, uh, presumably will be back as, as well as uh, Will Anderson Jr. and and Blake Cashman, like I, I just think with what these Texans have proved to to be on top of what we know CJ to be, I I just feel really good about them these last three weeks, uh, probably more so than the other two teams, so. I can't wait to see how it all shapes up. And I mean, if the race itself wasn't good enough, this this week 16 is going to be huge for all three of them. I believe, what is it? The, the Jags go on the road to face the division-leading Buccaneers. The Colts are on the road at the Falcons, who are trying, trying to save their season. And then you've got the Texans hosting the Browns, who have a winning record and, and are looking like the five seed in the playoffs. So all three of these teams playing very big games in week 16. It's going to be fascinating. And Ben, as usual, don't be surprised if we call you back to break it all down next week. I always appreciate these chats, man. Thanks a lot.
No problem, Dave. Thanks for having me. All right, we're officially done with week 15. We turn the focus toward Christmas weekend, Christmas Eve games, Christmas Day games, so much to look forward to. And let's start it off with an early present. That would be the week 16 power rankings. What better way to get ready for the holiday than to argue with your friends and family about the arbitrary place that your team holds on the board? Let's get right into it like we always do. I like the way we did this last week. We're in the end game now. There's only three games to play. We're going we're gonna to focus on the contenders, on the teams with a shot. We don't need to dwell on the bottom of the board right now. So let's start it out in the middle of the pack with a team that I'm just deeply disappointed in at number 18, down three spots from last week. That would be the Green Bay Packers who fall at Lambeau to Tampa Bay. Packers. The Bucs had only managed 350 yards of offense twice this year heading into your game. You gave up 450, 34 points. Let the Buccaneers move the ball at will. We have talked for two years now about all the first round picks on this defense. I know they haven't all been healthy always at the same time, but there's too much talent there for this little production. This was a team that was a, a sneaky favorite to be a playoff spoiler. And now their playoff hopes, not dead, but, but looking awfully dim. I completely understand why Joe Barry's seat in green Bay feels red hot right now, keeping an eye on the defensive coordinator situation heading into the final three games. Packers. I'm so disappointed. Speaking of that, let's, let's just keep it. It at Lambeau Field, the team that beat them up a couple spots from last week. That would be the Buccaneers sitting at number 14. Baker Mayfield take a bow, a perfect passer rating on the road at Lambeau Field. I think the guy's been playing well all season long. Certainly better than the Bucks record indicates. I have a feeling as long as we don't see a total collapse here, I think Baker Mayfield is the is a is on the roster in 2024. I think he's their starter heading into next season. He's been more than good enough. Maybe you draft a guy that you can develop, but Baker Mayfield, I think has earned the right to be the guy moving forward based on performances like this. And the Buccaneers on top of the NFC South, plenty more work to do, but after it just felt like they took a five week hiatus from the spotlight, they are back in a big way, just in time for postseason contention. Let's keep it pushing. At number seven, I moved the Cleveland Browns up one spot from last week. We're not going to overreact to a miracle win against the Bears. Took every effort to come back from a 10-point deficit in the fourth quarter. They almost lost it on a Hail Mary. But it's a big deal to me because, one, it assures the Browns a winning record. I did a whole spiel about that on the Monday show. Number two, the end of it, it, it shows you the best of what the Browns can be. If Joe Flacco can avoid the turnovers that we saw early, he's good enough. He can score you enough points that this defense can do the rest. That's what we saw down the home stretch. If the Browns can keep that formula clicking, this isn't a team that I would want to play in the playoffs. I certainly think they are a top 10 team, better than a top 10 team. Couple spots up from them. The Dallas Cowboys take a little bit of a tumble down four spots to number five. I had, I was conflicted about what to do with Dallas and Philly after the big loss to Buffalo. Philly kind of bailed me out with that loss in Seattle. I put the Cowboys at five. Yes. 
super embarrassing loss to the Buffalo Bills. Yes, they got to do something about the run defense. Yes, they got to learn how to play on the road. But I look at it. They just beat the brakes off of Philadelphia. That still counts. That game still happened. And I like the Cowboys odds against just about everybody ranked behind them. Yeah, I, I will admit feels a little weird seeing KC all the way up there at number nine. But the way that offense is stopping and starting, I don't feel guilty about letting them hang out back there for the time being. The Cowboys are still a top five team in the NFL, even if they have some work to do to prove that they're better than that. They fell short in Buffalo, still plenty of opportunities against the likes of the Dolphins and the Lions before the playoffs start. Then there's the team that beat them, the Buffalo Bills at number three, up two spots from last week. I've got an eight and six team at the three spot. I said it after Sunday's games, San Francisco and Baltimore are the only teams in the league that I feel remotely confident could beat the bills right now. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly how I've got the board. Defense is coming together after some injuries. Josh Allen is playing like the badass that he is. They found their run game. Yeah, I'm, I got a little bit of a crush on the Buffalo Bills. I don't feel bad about it. And let's just give some love. I dropped the Ravens for no good reason last week. I bumped them into the two spot, handled business. You go on the road and beat a division leader by 16 while not playing all that flashy. I'd say you're a pretty damn good team. I'd say you deserve the two spot. I'd say I can't wait for Christmas night. Forget. I'm sorry to my friends and family, whatever presents are coming my way in real life. All I need is Ravens and Niners on Christmas night. Guess what? We're all going to get it. I can't wait. San Francisco, Baltimore, two very deserving top two teams to round out our power rankings. We will see how that changes next time we do this show. But that wraps us up for now. This was a fun one. Fun week. I'm sure it's only going to get better as the holidays arrive. We will be back this week to preview all of the Christmas action. We'll have you covered over the weekend. We are your one-stop shop for all things NFL. And that's why you should go subscribe on Spotify. You should go find us on Apple Podcasts. We have a YouTube channel. Wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you get your NFL news, you can find us. We appreciate it so much, y'all. I hope you're having a happy holiday season. I hope you're done working for the year or close to it. Or if you are working, I hope you're going to keep it right here and uh, and follow along for all your latest on the NFL on Fox podcast. Yeah, I think I said everything. Happy holidays. I'll catch y'all next time.